Hello, curling fans, and welcome back to another edition of Way Inside, your bi-weekly inside look at a curler and me. I'm John Cullen. Nice to see you again. Thanks for coming back. It has been a crazy championship season in the curling world. The Briar just wrapping up, the World Women's Championship happening now, the World Men's coming up. Buses. And that got me thinking... Maybe it's time for Story Time with John, where I tell you about the worst curling loss I ever had. For this, we need to go all the way back to the second season that I ever curled. It was sort of the first season I ever curled competitively. The first year I played in a junior league, but, you know, didn't even think about playdowns or anything like that. And then I moved from Ontario to British Columbia. So shout out Ontario Skips. Your boy has birthright. I came out to BC and I got on a pretty good junior team and we thought, you know what? We're playing in a junior league. Why not go in juvenile playdowns? And so we entered juvenile playdowns. I don't know how many teams were in it, but we somehow found ourselves in the final of the regional playdowns to make it to the juvenile provincials, which is now what we would call uh, U18, but at the time uh, was called juveniles. And so we were in the final against a long-established BC team. It was two brothers, their whole family curled, and they were very good. They were way better than us. They had been curling since they were kids, and we were just all first-year curlers, basically just having a fun time. So we make it all the way to the final, and wouldn't you know it, we're laying the boots to them. We are just killing them. Sixth end rolls around. These are eight-end games, of course. Sixth end rolls around. I think we put two on the board to take an eight to two lead. Yes, we were winning eight to two with two ends to play. The skip of the other team goes to shake our hand. He says, oh, we're down six. There's only two ends to play. Let's wrap it up. Then their dad, their coach, calls a timeout frantically from behind the glass. He comes out on the ice and he says, do not shake their hands. This is the finals. You cannot give up right now. The team was upset. They wanted to quit, but their dad said, don't quit. And wouldn't you know it, their dad made the right choice. Because in the seventh end, we gave up four. In the eighth end, we gave up a steal of two. And in the extra end, we gave up a steal of one to lose nine-eight. Yeah. I know we were up six points with two ends to play and we lost. And I'll tell you something right now. I should have learned a lesson that day. Quit. I should have quit curling right then because that was really the blueprint for my entire career, winning a bunch of BC silver and bronze medals, but I could never get over the hump. Little did I know as a 16 year old kid who had just moved to BC that that was going to be a harbinger of things to come. However, our guest today did an awful lot of winning. Jill Officer, longtime teammate of Jennifer Jones, six-time Scotty's champion, Olympic gold medalist, and a listener of this show. Her and I had never talked before we actually got on the show, followed each other on social media, but we'd never met in person. We'd never talked before. And she sent me a really nice note about Way Inside and how much she was enjoying it. And I said, Jill... Let's get you on the show. We haven't really done a sort of retrospective with a retired guest on the program. And we get into Jill's whole career from the highs to the lows. It's a great chat. I know you're going to love it. Here it is, Jill Officer. All right, I am here with Jill Officer and Jill. We always start each episode with a top four. This is a lightning round. You're just going to give me a quick answer to these four questions, whatever pops in your head first. You ready? As ready as I'll ever be. Question one, which curler have you never played with that you would want to? Joan McCusker. If you know that all the rocks are exactly the same, both sets are great, you're happy with both of the sets, what color are you taking? Red, totally Canada. (laughs) What is something that's considered a basic thing in curling that you struggled to learn? Well, I always thought that my gap was like strategy. 
lastly, how would your bitterest rival describe you? Too nice. <laughs> Too nice. Wow. Does that okay. Sound bad that I've this said is the that? classic. Like my biggest weakness is I have too many strengths. Yeah, like almost, almost like God. She's so annoying because she's just nice. Like that probably sounds super arrogant, and I don't mean it to come across that way. <laughs> no, it didn't sound arrogant. It sounded like sweet, but it was funny to me too because I can see your face. People listening to this podcast can't. It did look like you were spending a second trying to picture who your bitterest rival is, which I always appreciate. <laughs> Not everybody does that. I think some people are like, oh, I got like 50 rivals. I just picture them all hating me. But it looked like you were searching for a specific face, which I appreciate. I totally was. And I, I, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I have one that I don't know of. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jill. So you ever going to fully retire or what? <laughs> I know. I always said I'm going to be the only athlete that didn't use the word retirement that actually does retire. <laughs> I, yeah, that's true. You just kind of said I'm stepping away. Who knows what will happen? But you have actually managed to stay retired, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't necessarily my intention. And I think, you know, COVID didn't help somebody like me who is sort of in between things. Like, there's no way I'm going back to playing at that level. I just can't <laughs> fathom doing all the work to do it. But I mean, probably saw that I filled in uh, for Selena at the Manitoba Women's Scotties and for Team Laws. And if I could do one-offs like that once in a while, I'd be happy. Like, it's just nice to kind of be in that environment again for a short time and a bit tougher on the body, not so much during the event, but after, because if I've played 10 ends of curling in the last three years... I'd probably be exaggerating and <laughs> that's you and me both. And then I went and played seven games and like, or whatever it was, seven or eight games in like four days. I do use the word retirement a little bit more now. <laughs> yeah. Right. Then people don't knock down your door. Cause when you start saying, you know, I'm into like a one-off event every now and again, then the phone probably starts ringing more than you would want it to. I'd be flattered, but I, I don't think that that's necessarily going to happen. So when you stepped away, you weren't necessarily thinking that that was it. You were just kind of thinking like, oh, this might be a one or two year thing and then I'm going to get back to it. I always wanted to leave the door open for it. I guess from a competitive standpoint, like in my heart, I sort of felt like I maybe wanted to do some more. I think that I would have mentally and emotionally broken myself if I continued on. <laughs> it, like if I tried to like push my way through that for like another full quadrennial. So I did want to leave the door open, but you know, I had one opportunity and it just wasn't the right timing. And then when COVID hit halfway through that last quad, you know, it made it hard for everybody, but I went a whole winter without stepping foot in a curling club, which, you know, I've never done since I was probably six. <laughs> <laughs> I was the same too. I mean, not that I ever played at the level you did, but when I stopped playing, I was just like, I don't need a league. I don't need to be around the curling club. Like I was just like, you know what? I'm good. I knew that I wanted to stay connected to curling. I mean, it's sure. been my community for so long and I, I wanted to have that connection. When COVID hit, it was just hard to sort of maintain the connection, I guess. Well, maybe not connection to the curling community itself, but to, like, to some of the players in the events because nothing was happening. And so I, didn't, I never set foot on the ice. I didn't practice. Like, you know, I could have went to the Scotties in the bubble, but <laughs> it's like, well, you know, you know, do I really want to go isolate for, you know, right. 10 or 12 days, you know, and what am I getting out of it? And yeah, so it's just like I had opportunities along the way. It was just the timing of things just never you know, felt right. And who asked you to be in the bubble Scotty? Is you going to spill the tea or what? No. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. I actually thought you were going to, I mean, I have a guess. I have a guess in my mind, but I won't. Well, there were two. I'll tell you that there were two. two. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's nice. I don't know if you know this, but you have one of the more weirdly specific curling Wikipedia pages. I don't know. No. If, I don't know who wrote it, but someone who wrote it is a big fan of yours. It's just it's okay. very detailed. It's very uh, proper. It's good. Oh, interesting. It's very good. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so your Wikipedia page is very specific. It says that you met Jennifer Jones at a Coke machine. Is that true? Number one. And number two, how did the kind of team come together when she did approach you, whether or not it was at a Coke machine? So I guess the short answer is sort of yes. <laughs> um, it was it, What happened was I had played against her. I was skipping my own team like when I was younger, like 
really younger. <laughs> we had played against each other in a bond spill here and there and in the zone playdowns here in Manitoba in the juniors. And so we knew who each other was. And she at the old Highlander Curling Club in Winnipeg, she just kind of like pulled me aside. Like she's like, oh, can I talk to you for a minute? And pulled me aside over by the Coke machine. I don't know why I always remember <laughs> that. But she pulled me aside over by the Coke machine and proceeded to ask me to curl with her. And you know, she'd already won a provincial junior championship at that time, and I had never even played in a provincial at that time. So uh, I was a bit taken aback and like a little bit starstruck, actually, at that. Right, like, oh, you noticed me. Yeah, exactly, right? So, you know, I thought, oh, I better talk to my parents about this because I'm going to need the car a little more often, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it kind of panned out from there. And I don't remember how we came together with the other two girls in our junior days, like with Trisha Baldwin and Dana Malinchuk at the time. The first year we played together, we lost the provincial finals, so that was pretty good. <laughs> You're like, oh, this is this might be a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, the start of a long partnership, and we'll get into that, but uh, your Canadian juniors history is so crazy. Like, I, it's so funny because, you know, people are having some consternation right now about, oh, the Briar and Scotty's format, is it right, whatever, and I'm like... I've known about this for a while, but just rereading it again, preparing for this interview, I'm like, if we had Twitter when this was going down in 1994-95, the wheels would have fallen off. People would have gone insane. So first of all, for people who maybe don't know the story, can you walk them through the story? Like the 1995 juniors, like that's insane. So anyway... Please share the story because it's unbelievable. Yeah, Jen and I started curling together. We lost the provincial final the first year. The second year we won the provincials and we went to the juniors in Trois-Rivières and we made it tiebreaker lost. Next year we won the provincials again in 1994, went on to the nationals and we won the nationals. Going in, everybody knew what the situation was going to be. Whoever won the nationals that year was not going to get an automatic berth to represent Canada at the world championships because at that time, whoever won the Canadian juniors would go to the world championships a year later to represent Canada. And they were switching it so that you went to the world's the same season. So it was basically like the 1993 winner went in 1994 and then the 1994 winner couldn't go in 95. They were going to have the 95 winner go in 95. Correct. Not only was that the situation for both teams going in, uh, so we won the Canadian Juniors, you know, which was still a thrilling experience. And we we knew that we wouldn't be automatically representing Canada at the Worlds. But then that was the days when the Junior Finals were on CBC and they would stagger start them. And so our our game finished early and there was two ends left or something in the in the boys game. And it was the Territories against uh, Alberta. And on the Territories team was Jamie Cooey. And Kevin Cooey. The famous rock kick. Yeah, and the Whitehead brothers. And then on the Alberta team, I can't remember all of them, but I know Scott Pfeiffer was on the on the Alberta team at that time. Colin Davidson was the skip. Right, right. And so uh, I remember us standing there watching, and yeah, I think they went into an extra end, and then it was like Kevin's last shot, and one of the sweepers kicked the rock, and there was this whole debacle, and it was like... And then... They ended up, whatever the situation was, they ended up declaring the Alberta team winning. So it was us in Alberta that won. But then on the boys' side, the team that had won the Canadian Juniors the year before had gotten suspended for alcohol consumption, I think, or something. <laughs> sure, yeah. And and so then Colin Davison's team from Alberta, they still got to go and play in the World Juniors. But I think they went the next year. Like whatever happened there, it kind of made it a little bit easier on the boys side. And then for us, after winning, we got an automatic buy into the semifinal of the Canadian Junior Championships the next season <laughs> as Team Canada. And I mean, that's insane. The Manitoba Curling Association at the time, like they said they would be fine with us playing in the provincial championship as well. So we could actually earn two ways to get there. Right. So we played in the provincial championship. If we had won the provincial championship, we would have went as team Manitoba, obviously, but we sure. always still would have that semifinal spot as team Canada. But we ended up losing the provincial final to Kelly McKenzie, who is now Kelly Scott. Kelly Scott. Yeah. 
And then uh, we went to the Canadian Juniors at the Cali Club in Regina, and we showed up like midweek. It was super awkward. It was super weird. So weird. Walking in our Team Canada gear into the middle of this championship, and we hadn't been there for half the week, and like... It was just super awkward and weird. And we, we got the chance to practice and stuff. But like, we just went straight into the semifinal. And who do we play? Kelly McKenzie. <laughs> well, and also weird, too, because they did it like previous to that. It The junior format was a full round robin and then three qualifiers. So if you won the round robin, you got a bye to the final. And the two teams left would play in the semis. But now you're telling the team that finishes first, hey, actually, you don't get a bye. You got to go play Jennifer Jones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happened. So <laughs> I don't know if we we might have been seated one and we played McKenzie. Yeah, I think I think you were seated. one. Yeah, yeah. So then we lost that game as well. So we never played in a World Juniors. Kelly McKenzie went on to win the World Juniors that year. <laughs> You know, obviously, you're not going to turn down a semifinal berth, but you're so behind the eight ball. You didn't practice on the ice all week. There was almost no scenario where you could have won there, I feel like. Like, it just would have been so difficult to do. Yeah. Well, if we had been Team Manitoba, we probably would have had a better chance. For sure. For sure. Which is so wild to think about. But yeah, Yeah. anyway, like I say, I feel like if that happened now, people would be losing their minds. And maybe they were at the time. Did you get a sense of like the other teams were kind of pissed at you? Like you sort of roll in midweek, like, haha, we're in the semis. No, I didn't get that sense. It just got this, like, it was just awkward because it was, you know, everyone had gotten to know each other already and they'd played so many games and here we are like right hi you know like strutting in with our team canada gear it was just awkward it was just awkward of course now they're going back to having that one year so well and with both the canadian junior teams getting relegated uh i'm gonna go ahead and say maybe they're gonna switch it back again and who knows maybe we'll have some kind of weird uh berth I want to talk to you about uh, about Jennifer. You know, you played together for pretty much all of your careers after that junior, you know, a few years off. But what was it? I'm always fascinated in curling because I think, you know, we hear a lot from players that there's always an expiry date. You know, no matter how much you love playing with someone or whatever, there always seems to be an expiry date. And you and Jen never really had that. I mean, you know, you made it all the way to the end of your career. What was it about that partnership that worked so well for the two of you for the better part of three decades? I think we kind of balanced each other in some way, because I actually think we're, yeah, we're reasonably different people. I mean, obviously, we have, you know, things in common and whatever else, but it was just like, we're, we're, we were kind of different people. Like, I'm super outgoing. She's a little more introverted. You know, she thinks a little more outside the box, probably. But I think I always brought sort of more of the... um mental and emotional perspective and she always kind of brought like more of the game perspective and what we needed to do better and so it was like we had different things to contribute and I think that we kind of balanced it out but we also like obviously agreed with each other's perspective otherwise you know that would that would be probably a problem (laughs) but uh, I, I do think it was just that you know in some way we're a little bit different from each other and it worked because of that in a lot of ways because we just brought something different to the table and I think that we had the utmost respect for each other. Yeah, no kidding. And what do you think, you know, obviously you're you're one of the best players to ever play. And a lot of people, especially after the Olympics last year and the Scotties final this year, people are, you know, people think Jen is the best ever. Um, you know, what do you think makes her so good and what has made her so good for so long? Yeah, and I mean, I already mentioned one of the things. I think she has an ability to to think outside the box, you know, bring sort of a different perspective and be willing to look at anything, sort of, you know, taking that step back and saying, regardless of cost or regardless of this, what do we need in order to be the best? Just think of whatever it is and let's see if we can figure out how to make that happen. So I think that's part of it. I think it was um, just an intense and like fierce competitiveness on the ice. Like she's not necessarily like that in other in other areas, but being on the ice, there was just that competitiveness and desire to be better and and to win. And she just has a passion for the game. Like she's just I don't know. Like she's just something about her when she gets in the hawk and it's, she gets in this like zone and she makes these shots that are like. You know, I mean, the, the the Scotties final in 2005 is the prime example of, you know, under pressure, 
kind of shot. And honestly, I'm so grateful to have had a front row seat to that. <laughs> like not sure. just that shot, not just that shot, but like to the performances of her and and to be part of the performance of our whole, like our whole team and, and how we performed on a regular basis. So she's very intelligent. She's very, very intelligent and can see ahead from everybody else. This is perfect. My literal next question was about that shot in 2005, one of the most iconic shots in curling history. And I'm always curious, as someone who played lead for his whole career, you know, I know that playing front end, sometimes in those moments, you have different feelings. What was going through your mind as, you know, you're sort of leading up to playing this shot and, and then, you know, right when it's happening and then afterwards, what, were, what was kind of going through your mind in that whole kind of scenario? I do remember being very nervous when she came down to throw it, I, I remember just feeling like the blood pumping in my body. Um, I was also were thinking, okay, just try and keep it as normal as possible. So I, I, I don't even know if I said, okay, okay, Jen, let's go or whatever. Right. And then it was so funny because she threw the rock and I yelled peel like it was going to be any other speed. <laughs> well, Hey, look, you gotta let, you gotta let everybody know. <laughs> Yeah. And then uh, and then I just remember sweeping it and thinking like it was coming like an intern to the boards. And I just remember thinking, don't trip, like don't trip on the side, like the foam on the side, because I was getting close to that. And I was like, you know, trying to make sure that my feet were (laughs) under me. And then when it hit, I remember like watching it, like kind of following it and watching it. I mean, you can see it from the overhead, but I remember even from my own perspective, I remember just kind of like, following it because I could see it going straight to that rock but wondering if it had enough speed to actually get it out and so when it hit it and it went out it was just like I just screamed like I was a kid on a ride at (laughs) Disneyland like I was just like lost my mind and ran down to the other end my mic fell off I don't even know what I did with my broom it was just like pure jubilation and and happiness like it was so wild and I mean the crowd was bananas. Like it was just so wild. That whole like minute, it was just bizarre. It was crazy. I mean, this maybe speaks to your partnership. I rewatched the shot today and I, and it was funny because I think skips now maybe have a little more in their mind about celebrating or like they know like, okay, if this is a potential big shot, I'm going to be close to everybody. You know, I'm thinking maybe specifically of like Jason Gunlickson's big shot. You know, he made that crazy shot and he's like basically right there. Like he's like inside the hog line ready to celebrate with the fellas. And so you kind of had the moment where the rock hits, the three of you are all in the house and Jen kind of stopped like a quarter, like she's basically just over the far hog line. And I can see you sort of realize like, oh, I, I should go hug her. She's just (laughs) chilling out by herself out there. Oh yeah. I think I sprinted down the ice. And then I remember us laughing afterwards because our alternate player, Trish, who was, she was on our junior team and uh, she, she made it down to Jen before Kathy, Kathy did. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody was so excited. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, great to watch. And I did also have to think to myself while I was watching that clip, what's the worst curling fashion, your giant pants in 2005 or the toque in the 2014 Olympics, which is worse. Oh, the pants by far. It's not even close, John. Well, the toque is kind of, it's got that funny stripe down the middle. I don't know. Oh, no. I would wear that toque again all day. I would. Over those those brown polyester Manitoba pants. Oh. Oh, they're ginormous. I don't know who they were made for, but it wasn't anybody that was playing on the ice. (laughs) Yeah, the uniforms have come a long way, thankfully. Yes, yes, they certainly have. I have a segment here I call Dirty Laundry, where I try to dig up dirt on my guest. I'll say this, I had a I had an unreturned email from a former teammate of yours, so I don't know what's going on, but uh, <laughs> look, the gates are closed. However, I am, a, I am a man who has a show and I must do research, so I did do some research here and I learned something about you. You used to be a competitive baton twirler. Um, what is that? What does that mean? What, what, what is that? Yeah, I played, a, I did a lot of different sports when I was younger and, uh, I did twirl the baton for a few years. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. There was a couple of different like styles. Like there was like a, like marching and then there was more of like a routine of like twirling and, and stuff like that. And yeah, I went to a few competitions like down in the States and stuff like not, not very far, like just into North Dakota, like, which is just South of Manitoba and right. got a few trophies. I think I still have them downstairs with my curling trophies. And uh, my mom gave me this 
old box of trophies and there was a couple of baton ones in there. So I love that. It's like the Olympic gold medal right beside the Monot baton twirling competition, 1986. Uh, yeah. Officer. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Second dirty laundry question. What is the craziest sponsor you've ever had and why is it pork for peak performance? <laughs> Uh, I guess you're thinking it's Manitoba pork. <laughs> Somehow that slipped my mind. I was watching an interview with you and it was like right up by your face is pork for peak performance. High end athletes yeah. just shoving in bacon right before they play. <laughs> yeah, they, I, I don't even remember how, how we got Manitoba pork as a sponsor, but they were really great to us. And, um, they were a big pork producer here in Manitoba and we, uh, export a lot of pork around the world. So <laughs> I, I know, I'm sure they were a great sponsor. They had very nice real estate on your jacket. It just yeah. like the slogan, just, I, it, it blew me away. So <laughs> I'm uh, never going to think about it the same now. <laughs> You know, your your team had a pretty incredible stretch. You won three Scotties in a row. And I've interviewed team members from both Kevin Martin and Glenn Howard's teams from around the same time. And they kind of talked about, you know, this sort of aura of invincibility at the time that they felt like they had. It wasn't like it is now where you've got 15, 20 teams that are all at the top. Like they just felt like those two teams in particular were just that little bit better than everybody else. Did you have the same feeling about your team at that time? Yeah, I would say that it did. I feel like we almost had another period of that when Caitlin came on the team. For sure. Definitely, I think in that 08, 09, 2010, yeah, like the first year that Dawn came on the team, actually, we won the Worlds in Vernon in 2008. That was the first year that she'd been on the team. So I think she really added a, a lot as well that we just kind of got some momentum and took our team to a, a new level and yeah, just rode the wave for a while. It was great. <laughs> And you know what? It, the timing of that, too, was really great because um, just with all the hype about the Olympics being in Vancouver in 2010, right. uh, unfortunately, we didn't perform at the trials at that time, but we got to do a lot of things uh, because we were a favorite. We got to do a lot of things um, off the ice, and we did a lot of things with Kevin Martin's team because they were the favorite having won a couple of briars in that time. So we got to do some cool things off off the ice and help promote the games and, and things like that. So the timing of it was was good, too. But yeah, I, I certainly felt like we were in a place where if we put our best game forward all the time, that it was going to be hard to beat us. I did want to talk about Kathy O. We don't have to go into all the juicy details, obviously, of that whole situation. <laughs> but I was curious because... You know, again, as a front end player, I'm always curious about how being in the front end in those situations affects you, you know, because obviously the three of you had played together for such a long time and it was, you know, pretty public and messy situation. How did you kind of deal with that as a, as a front end player on the team? Because I feel like Jen kind of took the brunt of it, but you were there too for the whole thing. Like, how did it kind of play out from your perspective? Yeah, it, it's unfortunate that people made the assumption that it was Jen's decision and it was like her that did it and all that stuff, because I can tell you that it was not <laughs> like it was not just her. Right. We fully had an agreement and we were all there when we met with Kathy. I didn't want that to fall solely on on her shoulders. And so I think I always tried to do my best to speak that and make sure that people realized because it it wasn't right for her to get the brunt of it when, you know, it was the three of us that made that group decision. So it was important to me to try to express that to people because I just didn't want that to, to be the case. Like it was a really tough time. Like it was really hard. And I mean, we see more of it now. <laughs> it tends to not be as big of a deal, but at the time it was just something that we felt that we needed to do for various reasons. And we did the best that we could in terms of the process and how it all kind of played out. And um, it is what it is. Yeah. I mean, do you think it was different because you're a women's team as well? You know, I think we see a lot of conversation about that now, especially on social media, that women's teams tend to get a lot more criticism. Did you feel like that was a part of it also? I suspect that was a part of it. I do think that 
it was just not something that happened in curling very often because I remember Brad Gush's team had done something similar. Like it was the like the history there when Jamie was back and forth and whatever. And and I remember he got raked over the coals for it too. But it was probably a bigger deal because we were women. I feel like it went on for like a year and a half. I don't know if that was a similar situation to what Brad and his team went through when they did it. Because I I remember talking to Brad very briefly about that. But yeah, I I think that we probably were judged a little more because of uh, our gender. You talk about the difficult year and a half, and I I was going to ask you about that. You know, your team had been so strong. You won three Scotties in a row, and you make this change. And like I said, you, you sort of became villains in a way for a little bit there, and, and you weren't before. I mean, you, you know, Jen has been a, a favorite, and, and you too, obviously. But even now, you know, we see the curling public has gotten over it now and we're back to everybody loves Jen the way it should be. But yeah, you had to sort of square with like, geez, we're, are we like the first curling villains ever? Like how did that affect the team? Was it something that you actually talked about and tried to deal with? Did you, do you think it affected your on ice play? How did that kind of play out? We very much leaned on each other for support. Our sports psychologist at the time, Cal Botterell, we very much leaned on him at the time as well to help us through it. And Really, we just kept trying to stick to our messages and like we didn't need to get into it with anybody. We didn't need to, you know, get into the details of, of our reasons and anything like that. That wouldn't be, wouldn't have been fair to Kathy to make any of that sort of public. And we just really tried to take the high road the whole time. Because it was awkward for a long time. It was awkward throughout the whole next season. And then the whole game at the Scotties, like it was just, you know, every time it was just a big deal. And and I understand that. So it was really hard to kind of get through it. But in hindsight, I'm really glad that we took the high road the way that we did. You know, I, I think we're seeing maybe a bit of a parallel right now with Brendan Botcher, right? He's kind of taken the high road in that whole scenario. And and I think that, you know, people are still a little mad about that whole thing. But, you know, we saw Brendan and Darren laughing with each other at the Briar this year. And, you know, I, I think down the road, that'll probably do him some favors. A hundred percent. And and I felt so bad for, for both sides, really, when that whole situation went down. For And I mean, everybody felt bad for Darren, which I a hundred percent understand, as someone who had gone through that exact situation, I felt horrible for Brendan and the rest of the team. You don't want to say too much because you don't want to get into like that nitpicking back and forth and in, in that match in the in the media type thing. You're trying to be respectful, but so you're trying not to say too much, but then people are judging you and criticizing you when they actually don't have all the information in the context. So I felt really bad for them and I'm not sure it'll last a year and a half for them. So. <laughs> Um, I wanted to now, you know, try to put your career in perspective a little bit. You know, obviously you've done some amazing things in the sport. Do you have, you know, you've you've won six Scotties titles. You know, you're tied for the most with your teammate Jennifer and, and Colleen. And, you know, you also are still the only team to go undefeated through the Olympics. Do you value one of those achievements over the other? I guess when I think about the highlights, I guess I think about the Olympics and I think about the Scotties titles. And and part of the Scotties actually, though, too, is that I really don't mean for this to come across as, as arrogant or anything. I but asked you about your achievements. You're allowed to get your brag okay. on. <laughs> but we were on the podium every year at the Scotties, you know? And I just look back and the perspective that I have now, and I just look back and think, oh, geez. Like, I mean, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, to think that we were on the podium every year, we won it six times. Like, it's just mind boggling, you know, and, and when I think back to juniors and not getting to play in the world junior championships, I'm like, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm okay. Yeah. My, I, my, you know, the rest of my career made up for that and then some. So I, I don't think too much about going undefeated. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a cool record. And I remember us talking about it at the time and saying, oh, we have like, an OR beside our team, like as an Olympic yeah. record, you know, that you like you see on the, yeah. on the TV. So, you know, that, that is pretty cool, but uh, yeah, it's hard not to point to the six Scotties and the, uh, the Olympics. You haven't fully left the game. You're the director of the athletes commission for uh, the world curling federation. And I, I wanted to ask you about it because I think that the curling fans and people who listen to this podcast 
probably think that the athletes don't really have much of a say. And, and part of that is the athletes themselves are saying, eh, we don't really have that much of a say. Uh, we've seen Team Hasselborg be very vocal. We've seen the, the new Players Association sort of forming. So first of all, can you talk to me a little bit about the Athlete Commission in general? How do you sort of relate to the World Curling Federation? And how much say do you feel the athletes have had, you know, over your time playing the sport and, and leading up to now? That's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> first of all, I guess I'll, I'll just explain the, the Athlete Commission. It was originally started as a bit of a requirement, like an IOC requirement that they needed to have an athlete council. The first time that it was a fully elected group was in 2018 when I was elected on. We were supposed to have elections in the spring of 2020. And then when COVID hit, we were like, well, there was so much uncertainty and stuff. We put it off and then finally had the election a little over a year ago, there was only myself and Anna Kubishkova from Czech Republic that were left as members from the previous group. So it kind of made sense for one of us to be the chair. And she just had a baby and isn't curling a whole lot and, you know, trying to juggle motherhood and stuff. So I, I said that I would take it on. So currently on our group, we have myself and Anna as women's representatives. Tyler George and Benoit Schwartz are the male representatives. Runa Lorenston from Norway is our wheelchair rep and Harry Lill from Estonia is our mixed doubles rep. I feel that the Athlete Commission at the world level is well-respected. We're well-respected by the members. We're well-respected by the board. Um, I feel like the board always wants to know what the athletes think. We do our best to represent the athletes and we sit on various groups. Like um, I was on the the maximizing the value group that came up with all those crazy trial rules. But <laughs> I also sat there and said, I don't think this should be done at the world. And I know they hear me. Unfortunately, it just sometimes comes down to it being a bit of a negotiation or a compromise because I also now being on the commission, understand what the context is or where the other pressures are coming from for the board to make decisions. And I think that's one of the real keys that, I try to talk to athletes and give them context. Unfortunately, myself and my five colleagues on my commission don't have time to talk to 500 athletes all the time. <laughs> sure, yeah, of course. We kind of need to rely on them to come to us sometimes. And, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do right now, being the chair, is to just have a bit better communication between us and the athletes. You know, we're working on it, but one of the challenges that I find is that, you know, it's a volunteer position and I love doing it. But it's like I've got other commitments in my life. I'm in school, I'm working, and, you know, I'm a mom. So, and I mean, I know everybody can, you know, relate to that. So I keep trying to encourage athletes to come to us when they feel like they have, have a concern. As of this last September, the World Curling Federation Congress, the chair of the Athlete Commission, which just so happens to be me right now, <laughs> sits on uh, the board of the World Curling Federation as well. So we're not a voting member, but like I can give the athlete perspective in those board meetings, both when it's asked and when it's not asked. So <laughs> I object. You know, I think sometimes there's a perception out there that, that, the, that the athletes aren't heard. And I understand that because I feel like I was one of those people. Uh, an example is the 2018 Worlds when they changed the format to the 13-team round robin. And I just thought, well, why did they change it to that? And I don't like the 16 playoff and blah, 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 blah. And then when I got on the Athlete Commission and I found out what had happened and the context behind it and what the other option was, I was like, okay, I get it. I, that was the better option. <laughs> right. Like, I get right. it, right? But it's really, I think we need to do a better job of communicating sort of the context behind things so that there's an understanding as to why certain decisions are being made so that the athletes do actually feel like they're being heard and that their input is there. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it was because of the Athlete Commission and the Competition and Rules Commission that they only trialed one rule at the Worlds last year. <laughs> Right. Yes. You know, instead of the uh, the veritable menu of uh, yeah options. Yeah. yeah. So, but of course, like I said, it comes down down to communication and being able to get that information out to athletes that they know what what's happened and how that kind of came about. And we're trying to work on that. It's just sometimes challenging resource wise and time wise. Our intention is to expand a bit because with the World Curling Federation now controlling the the world rankings. We feel like we need to bring in some representation on that sort of points side of it. We do have a couple of athletes on the points group, like myself and Benoit Schwartz are on the points group. So, um, yeah, I think it's just kind of continuing that that communication and trying to get that information out. And hopefully athletes feel like they can also come to us 
Right, right, for sure. Well, we always finish the show with a segment I like to call Very Difficult Own Career Trivia. Are you ready for this, Jill? Okay, I'm ready. All right, here we go. At the Canadian Juniors in 1994, you had to go through two tiebreakers and you scored the same number of points in both your tiebreaker wins. How many points did you score in those two tiebreakers? That is so hard. That's It's uh, called very difficult own career trivia, Jill. I'm going to say eight. It was not eight, Jill. It was ten. Really? You scored, yeah, you beat Northern Ontario ten to four, and then you beat Ontario ten to eight. Oh, wow. Wow. So ten. you did even better than you thought. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh. In your first ever Scotty's game in 2005, you won seven to five. Who did you beat? Was it Colleen? It's Heather Strong. Oh, Heather Strong. Man. Oh no, you're really, really testing me here. People tend to remember their first game, I thought, but you've also been in like a billion Scotty's, so at this point it probably all blends together. All three of your Scotty's bronze medals were won in Alberta cities. Name all three. Lethbridge 07. Yeah. You don't have to name the year if you don't want to. Do I get bonus points for that? I'll consider it. Lethbridge 07, 2012, Red Deer. Yeah. We have a third bronze. They're in the bottom of a lake somewhere. I don't put my bronze medals up in the house. Sixteen. Must have been sixteen. Okay, but I'm not asking you the year, it's the city. <laughs> It's in Alberta. It is in Alberta. I'll give you the exact. So, yes. So, Lethbridge was 2007. Red Deer was 2012. Yeah. This one was 2016. I can't think of where it was in 2016. Why am I blanking on that? That's the most recent one. It is the most recent one. Jeez. It's not a major city. No, it wouldn't have been a major city. Oh, Grand Prairie. Grand Prairie. Yes. In 2010... You won one slam in the calendar year 2010, and it was an event that was only held as a slam three times. What was it called? Was it the one in Nova Scotia that was like the Sobe Slam? Sobe Slam. There you go. You got it. Yes. Okay. You got What's two. What's my score? So What's my score? Two out of four. So you got a chance oh. to tie. You got a chance to tie the record here. Three out of five. Last oh God, question. No pressure. No pressure. So not only did you go undefeated at the 2014 Olympics, but you also won every game by at least two points, except for one game. Who was the only team to get within one point of you in Sochi? And I can give you a hint. You won the game 7-6. It was the U.S. because we played them in an extra end. It was the U.S. Erica Brown. Yeah, I'm not the least bit competitive still, by the way. <laughs> I was going to say, you were you were more dialed into that than anyone who has been on the show so far. <laughs> now, this is the final question of the show. This is the extra end. And this question does not come from me, but it comes from last time's guest, John Schuster. On that day, John Schuster had a crazy travel day. He was going to the U.S. Mixed Doubles. His flight got diverted. All this crazy stuff went down. So his question is, what is the worst travel day you've ever had for curling? I can think of two. One was a little self-inflicted. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Coming home from the Worlds in Korea in 2009. Uh, it was a long. It was, it was just long. And are you saying self-inflicted means yeah. like, uh, yeah. you know, okay. The, actually, one of the other worst ones was coming home from Sochi. That was the worst part of the whole trip, actually, because we got picked up in a shuttle at like two in the morning. We get to the airport. We're like waiting in line. Like the airport's not very big and it's like chaos. People trying to get checked in and whatever else. I remember Brad, <laughs> Brad Jacobson had stayed, like stolen the comforter, taken the, I shouldn't say stolen, but taken the Sochi comforter off like from the beds that we had. And he was just carrying it. So he finally just laid down in the middle of the airport <laughs> with his Sochi blanket. <laughs> like, oh my God, it was so funny. But our flight was at five in the morning and we barely made our flight because we were like running through the airport to like get to the the plane, like I hadn't had water in hours. Like there was a bit of a pizza and beer party the the last night of Sochi, but I had like I had like two beer and whatever. But then I went hours without having anything to drink, and so we're on the plane and we sat on the tarmac for two and a half hours. Oh my god! I don't even think we'd taken off. I remember not feeling good, and I stood up and started walking down the aisle, and I was just like. I was just wobbling and wavering and I was like passing out because I was dehydrated. And so we were flying Sochi to Istanbul. Oh and so God. 
Um, I, they ended up like giving me some juice and stuff and I started kind of coming around, but Elaine Dag Jackson was our national coach and she came and kind of, you know, helped out or whatever. So they put me in a pod in, in the front of the plane, like while we landed and whatever. So then they come up to me, like once we landed and they come up to me and they're like, Oh, ambulance. We were in Istanbul. And it was like, oh, there's an ambulance waiting for you. Because they thought, like, I was like, no, no, I'm okay. <laughs> okay. I don't need an ambulance. I don't need to go to a Turkish hospital today. <laughs> wow. That's pretty good. Wonderful. Well, I love it, Jill. Thank you so much for joining me. Great to finally talk to you. This has been fantastic. Yes, you too, John. I'm too nice. All right, so there you have it. That was Jill Officer. Not bad for a first-time chat, I would say. Absolutely loved getting to talk to Jill. She said it kind of off the top of the show. She's too nice. Everybody agrees. She's, you know, one of the good people in curling. I mean, there's many good people in curling, but she's certainly one of the goodest. And that's, it's my show. I can make up words if I want to. I loved every second of it. I hope you did too. And now to finish off the show... As you know, in this space, sometimes we do a question of the week and we get an answer from a bunch of different curlers. But this time I started the show with a story and I kind of thought for this week's sort of quote unquote question of the week, I wanted to do story time with Jim. Those of you who listen to Inside Curling know Jungle Jim Jerome, uh, a very famous host, uh, you know, former radio guy. He's the host of Inside Curling, host of the Suspendables, very fun podcast with former NHLer Russ Cortnell. And it was actually on Inside Curling last week. They had EJ Harnden on the show, and he was talking about how Team Guju in their run to the Briar Championship went to the Briar patch once. They went once the whole event. And I'm not saying that's what every team did at the Briar, but certainly the culture around the game, the social culture around the game has changed a little bit and the teams just aren't partying as hard as they used to. And I heard a little birdie told me they don't call him jungle Jim for nothing is maybe a little bit of a patch legend, a patch veteran, if you will. And so I thought instead of asking a bunch of curlers about the patch or anything like that, trying to track down a bunch of different people, why not go to the man who, was maybe the best patch partier of all, Jungle Jim. I asked him to tell me what was your best ever patch story or moment, or at least one that you can share on this program. And so here's what Jim had to say. My, what, my all-time favorite is, uh, this is a big patch. There's six, 7,000 people. And uh, so we got to have a full camera crew. And I'm whipping around the patch. I called it going fishing, you know, to get people on camera. It's like, you throw a line in there, eventually you're going to get a whopper, you know. And as I'm walking along trying to find a fish to put on camera and make fun of, I see a guy totally passed out cold by himself sitting in a chair with his arms folded and his head's down and he's out. He's out cold. And so I get the guy, I get over here, get the camera guy. I put the camera on the guy and of course we got giant screens so all 7,000 people can see this. And... I bring a guy, a guy over who had one of those big bull horns, you know, okay? And the guy's out cold. We got him on screen. I get everyone, shh, 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 And the whole room goes completely quiet. And I get the guy to blast him in the ear, you know, with the bullhorn. <laughs> you know what it was, okay? It's just like, Bwah! okay, the guy, the guy snaps out of his chair, okay? He's, it looks like he's been snipered, you know, and he jumps up and he's, freaking white and he's gonna faint and he's and we got the camera there and he's looking at it. he doesn't know what the hell's going on and 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 he's like oh my god like he's gonna have a heart attack and i stick the mic in his face and he's looking at it and he's going what what and he sees himself up on the screen you know and he starts to he's you know he's going from almost dead to Oh, hey, everybody! Yeah, rock and roll. Okay, so he's screaming, and and the place is erupting, and he's now he's now the the immediate mascot of the patch, you know. And anyway, he sits back down. We got the cameras still on him. And they, you know, they go to me and to talk about doing something else. And 
the place is the band is gone and we look over and the guy's passed out again okay he fell asleep he just goes right back to where he was okay so he had this 32 seconds of greatness okay so that's not the story so the next night i'm out on the floor again it's between draws and i'm out fishing again you know, who am i going to talk to who am i going to pick on and i walk by and i see this nice couple walk in the door right 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 where i am and the guy the camera guy's with me and i go that's the dude from last night <laughs> okay and of course we record everything right we have every video that we do we record it because we show it the next day and highlights you know and i'm going that's that guy man so i get the camera guy get over here right i stopped him i go hey how you doing you know and the guy the guy's like yeah, fantastic. Yeah, thanks a lot for asking. You know, it's like he's all, he's lucid. Okay? And he's going, uh, I go, who's this? He goes, this is actually my fiance. I go, oh, that's fantastic. You know, that's beautiful. When's the big day? Congratulations. Uh, and I say to the guy, um, have you ever been to the patch before? And he looks at me, he goes, no, no, this is my first time. You know, I thought I'd bring my fiance down because I've never been here before. And I go, really? Let's check the screens, okay? And we throw, we throw the video up of this guy from the night before, okay? With this whole scene. And the girlfriend, the fiance, is looking at this thing. And she is going to go apoplectic, okay? She's red. And she, we got her on camera, too. And she's going, you lying prick! You told me! You told me! You were at the library studying for, for your exams, right? So that is absolutely one of my all-time favorites. Wow, that was truly wild. Thank you to Jim for that. Make sure that you're listening to Inside Curling and his podcast, The Suspendables. Thank you for listening to Way Inside once again. We will be back in two weeks with another interview with one of your favorite players. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can follow me at Cullen on Curling on Twitter for more of my dumb stuff. And again, we'll see you back here in two weeks. And remember, if you're going to be inside, be way inside. I'm too nice. I'm too fast. I'm in control. Put on the gas. I give everything I got. No cap. So this is what you should do instead of getting mad. If you don't want me to be better than you. If you don't want me to be better than you. If you don't want me to be better than you. But I bet I'm still going to be better than you. Yeah, I'm still going to be better than you.